Father, you have set us free. Uh, bind us then to Christ. Send your spirit of your Son into our hearts, the spirit that cries, Abba, Father. Um, bear fruit in our lives, Father, for Jesus' sake. Amen. So, I love a good coming-of-age movie. I'm a child of the 80s. I know you wish you were. Consequently, The Breakfast Club is one of my all-time favourite films, like you. It's the simplest of films, I found out this week, made for under a million dollars. Imagine having that kind of impact for under a million dollars. It's about five school kids who experience a whole day Saturday detention at school. The teacher, representing an oppressive force, requires each of them to write an essay of no less than a thousand words, describing to me, he says, who you think you are. So it's an identity film, like all coming-of-age films. Here, an oppressive outside force requires justification of the teenager, always a bad idea, of who I am. One of the five, Brian the Brain, I was tempted to put the photo of him with the pen up his nose, but I resisted, for your sake. He writes a single essay for all of them, effectively dismissing the oppressive request. He writes, Dear Mr Vernon, we accept the fact that we had to sacrifice a whole Saturday in detention for whatever it was we did wrong. But we think you're crazy to make us write an essay telling you who we think we are. You see us as you want to see us, in the simplest terms, in the most convenient definitions. That's the way we saw each other at seven o'clock seven o'clock this morning, we were brainwashed. But what we found out during the day is each of us is a brain, each of us an athlete, a basket case, each a princess, each a criminal. Does that answer your question? Sincerely yours, The Breakfast Club. In other words, we define who we are. You can't fit us, squeeze us neatly into your categories. 35 years after this film, we are swimming in a sea of identity politics, not because of this film, of course. Who I am has always, of course, been a part of what it means to be human. Is there another creature who asks that question? What may be new, and in Western liberal democracies, what may be new is that the question is no longer primarily asked with reference to an external power a larger narrative or story, an historic script or scripture, or indeed a transcendent being, all forged in a community. That's not how it's done anymore. It's now being asked, and maybe for the first time in human history, as a personal and private internal decision that bubbles up from within, who am I? And an external imposition is oppressive, like Mr. Vernon, uh, an external imposition is controlling, abusive sometimes. In fact, they stop you from being who you are, your authentic, true self. Why would you want a Bible? 
being who you are then is a catch cry for self-determination based on how you feel on the inside, who you love, what you desire, and all of that is legitimate as long as you're not breaking a law or hurting anyone. Of course, anyone living when Galatians was written would have laughed at the project. They would have been confounded, gobsmacked at such a way of finding out who you are. They would have looked at you like you were from Mars. Everyone was asked, to whom do you belong? And they had an answer to that question. I belong to Yahweh, for I am a Jew living under Torah. I belong to the pagan gods, and so I worship at the temple. I belong to Caesar as Lord, therefore he requires my allegiance. Or put simply, I am my father's son. I do what he says. What then has happened? I mean, my grandfather would have been gobsmacked, gobsmacked at the changes of the last 20 years. You know, if he'd found out that a biological man could identify as a woman and run in a woman's race, I'm not, not trying to, I know this is a complex issue, but I, he would have just said, why, I mean, he died 20, 22 years ago, what, what are you talking about? And that's just in the last 20 years. Carl Truman, a theologian from Westminster in the United States, wrote an important book trying to understand what has happened. The book was called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and it is the perfect book title, where he outlines, I believe, dispassionately, not part of the culture wars in the book, he argues dispassionately about how we got here. Truman's contention is that it's not the kids of today who run amok, don't blame them. And it's not a subset of our society like the sexual minorities, don't blame them, don't do that. Rather, it has been, this new approach has been brewing for hundreds of years and in all of us that drink deeply from the well of Western liberal democracies. He also explains why in the end it often just comes down to sex and gender. Have you noticed that? Desire, because that bubbles up from within, and identity. And so the sexual revolution is not the cause of the current mode, but rather a symptom of centuries of deconstruction. In the book, Truman quotes Philip Reef, who in 1966 wrote this book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic. Reef contends that psychological man has replaced religious man or political man as the 20th century's dominant image. The psychological man, you, the suke, you on the inside. Think Freud. And so feelings become important for identity and emotion is the new force in debate and you know it. You've seen it in the last 24 hours after the whiplash of the Supreme Court. And so institutions fall, self-determination rises, we're more connected than ever and yet more lonely than ever. In Truman's book he quotes Charles Taylor who, who described the same phenomena in these terms. He said, it is the rise of the imminent frame and the demise of the transcendent frame, which is a way of saying here and now is what matters, that's the frame in which I 
view the world. Here and now is the only thing that matters and not there and then. So ditch the book. This is all there is. And who I am on the inside, bubbling up, determines what I do and who I am. And no one is allowed to suggest otherwise. Otherwise, you are toxic, old, a dinosaur, or a bigot. And that for Taylor leads to what he calls expressive individualism, where authenticity is king and authenticity is pitted against conformity. Now look at this quote. By the way, you came to church looking for a nice message to give you a pep talk for the week. I want to get you thinking. He writes, the understanding of life which emerges from the romantic expressivism of the late 18th century that each one of us has his or her own way of realising our humanity. I'm saying the last five years that people have been talking about my truth, my truth. And that is important to find and live out one's own way as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside by society or a previous generation or religious and political authority. Brian said, we were brainwashed. And so submission, of course, to an outside authority is the real evil. If you've ever heard someone say to you, why do you base your life on some old, outdated book, you're getting at what this means. By the way, when you ask that person, well, what do you base your life on? An answer is not usually forthcoming. A lot of this and a lot of that. But at its heart, it's usually the power to self-determine without a script, without God, or a scripture, or a community, or thank God, or rather thank self, Mr. Vernon. You want to be, as a young person said to me recently, you want to be captain of your own soul. If someone has said any of these slogans to you, then you know what we're talking about. You be you. Be true to your heart, yourself. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Find yourself. It's amazing that uh, the current scripture is now slogans that you retweet or share and memes. And you notice that the person, I think, often with the least deep and strong anchor in their life is the one who on Facebook is going, me, 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 all day, every day. Things that sort of resonate with whatever is bubbling up from within. And of course, it comes out of the whole Disney franchise over the last 60 years, really. But spoiler alert for every Disney film since the early 1990s, you can be who you want to be. The hero lies within you. Fascinating to me that they even turned the story of the Exodus into follow your dreams. Help me. Help me understand. In contrast, Paul says in Galatians that followers of Jesus Christ have a brand new identity in Christ. It's not oppressive, but liberating. But, and here's the key, it is an identity that God determined long ago. doesn't bubble up within. We conform to it. We yield to it. We submit to it. And in our submission 
to his identity, we find freedom. And instead of finding freedom in my identity and self, I find it in God's redeeming love. I find it in grace, amplified. Amen? To Jews who used to see Gentiles as unrighteous dogs, to Gentiles who were without hope and without God in the world, to men who looked down on women, to the free who mistreated slaves, Paul writes, as we learned last week, so in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. This applies to those who identify with Jesus Christ. And if you do, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, racial boundaries, neither slave nor free, economic boundaries. There is not, there is, nor is there male and female, gender boundaries. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's profound. Of course, in that day, Paul was talking about Jew and Gentile in the context of the letter of Galatians, but the slave and free provided the trajectory for the abolitionist movement. And neither is there male and female provides the trajectory for the equality of women. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is liberating, but it is not self-determining. Question, to whom do I belong? Answer, I belong to Jesus Christ, not myself. I'm a slave. And I belong to the redeemed and unified community in him, which leads me to our text. Our text today, chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, is a story that's being told of a young man who comes of age called Israel, the people of God. It's a story of a new exodus, a new liberation, with a new path, it is the story of our God and King. Like all stories, it has chronology. And so the three points I'll make today are then, when, and now. Then, when, and now. Now, you can follow me with your Bible, but I'm also going to put the text up on the screen. Firstly, Paul starts with then. Previously, in a different era, something was true about us, something glorious and something devastating. Paul writes... What I'm saying about this new thing, this new all-one in Christ Jesus, this new identity, is that as long as an heir is underage, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. That's glorious. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. That's an illustration. It's an understandable one. His point is in verse 3, so also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Paul in chapter 4 is retelling the story of the Exodus and he begins by setting up an illustration of an heir enslaved in verses 1 and 2 and it's not hard to understand. We know that a child can own the whole estate as an heir but while an infant has teachers and masters who, slave, who enslave them. In that sense, they're no different to a slave. But there is a moment, a time set by the Father, when they come of age. Princess Elizabeth there, in the middle in the car, she had governesses, set to inherit the crown, but not yet. In the meantime, she gets disciplined. We get it. Paul is drawing on the image that was used last week. Thank you, Roger, for your message about a pedagogos, pedagogy. But he's using different words here and extending the illustration, pushing a little further. But the point is in verse 3, 
So also when we were, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. We is not just you and me, but Israel in the old covenant, the young son. We were underage. The age of liberation had not yet happened. The people of God were the heir to the promise. The young child Israel was set to inherit the whole estate, the vineyard. But the promise to Abraham is the whole world. Such a bold promise. Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth, quoting the prophets. This is what I mean by something glorious. The people of Israel, an heir, set to inherit. But there's also something tragic. We were in slavery under what he calls the elemental spiritual forces of the world. I think the King James is better. In bondage under the elements of the world. Now remember this is Paul telling Israel's story from your Bibles. It's tempting to think the Torah itself are the elemental spiritual force, the elements. The Torah enslaves in the same way that the Gentiles were, Gentile Christians were once enslaved to pagan idols. We'll get to that next week in 4 verse 8. So is the Torah like a pagan god who enslaves Israel? I don't believe that's what Paul is saying here. Now, there's, it's simple, but there's also a lot going on. There's a strong case to be made that Paul is saying our story, the Jewish story, is the story of Torah being given, but of us also rejecting Torah because of something bubbling up within, of being enslaved to sin. And in that sense, we couldn't obey Torah, and the Torah is a story of being sent into exile, promised even in the book of Deuteronomy. And exile meant that we were forced to worship foreign gods, which are almost always made out of the elements, base elements, gods, small g, gods of wood and stone, or of the stars and the sky, the imminent frame. Deuteronomy 28 verse 36 is important. This is from the Torah. When you sin, the Lord will drive you and the kings you set over you to a nation unknown to you or your ancestors. That became Babylon. There in Babylon, you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone. And so in Deuteronomy, there's an understanding that Torah, meant to give life, won't cut it. Your hearts will be disobedient so that you'll need a deeper liberation. Put simply... Our story, says Paul, is a glorious one of promise. We are heirs of God, but it's also a tragic story, too, of, of a son who's sinful and stubborn, of being sent away to exile, Babylon first, then in Jesus' time, Roman occupation, of being enslaved to sin and therefore of foreign gods, the elements, wood and stone. But we were young. We were prodigal. And there was a time yet to come, promised during the exile and the prophets, for which the people were eagerly waiting for when Jesus was born. They were yearning, as Simeon was, for the consolation, the comfort of Israel, a time in the future when something happened, something amazing. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, 
born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under law that we might receive adoption to sonship. See, when the time had fully come, God did one thing. He sent his son. Jesus says in John 8, God sent me. In Mark 1, the time has come, said Jesus. The kingdom of God is at hand. God of all grace, you came when the time was right. When the father was ready, something new happened. He sent his son, born of a woman, emphasizing his blessing to the world, since there's not one of us who was not born of a woman and born under law. He was a Jew, Jesus, who kept the Torah, but perhaps more importantly here, Jesus was born under the punishment that came from Torah, namely he was born into exile under Roman occupation. And he said, I'm the liberation. The kingdom of God is at hand. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law, under Torah. You see how this is an Exodus story, a story of redemption? To redeem those under Torah, it is the story of a son setting slaves free that we might receive adoption to sonship, something new. But the story comes with a difference. In the Exodus, God sent Moses, born of a woman, to redeem his son Israel from slavery. And then God gave them Torah at Mount Sinai, which was intended to bring life, and then gave them his presence. He dwelt amongst them through the tabernacle. But the Torah is good, holy, and true, but it brought them death. Not that the Torah itself enslaved them, but the sin living in them was what enslaved them, bubbling up. You can see, by the way, why Christians are going to be at odds with a new identity politics, because we say something very different is bubbling up from within, and we say our identity is found somewhere else. Israel ended up enslaved to the elements, in exile, worshipping the gods of wood and stone, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son so that something will be true now. In verses 6 and 7, we learn things that are true now. That if you believe, if you live within the faithfulness of the Son of God, if you belong to God, if you belong to Jesus, said Jesus in John 8, then you are heirs of God, even if you're a Gentile, sons, according to the promise. And so he says in verse 6, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So Trinitarian. So intimate, Abba, Father. And he sent the spirit of his son so that you're caught up in what the Father has done in sending the Son and in the Spirit being sent into your heart. And so the conclusion here of this small section, he'll keep going in verse 8, but in verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, amen, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. God rescued us, not from Egypt, but from sin. 
not from an external oppressor, but from a master bubbling up within sin. And not by Moses, but by his son, Jesus Christ. Look at me for a moment. God saved Israel in the Exodus with a mighty and outstretched arm. And you really do need to look at me for just a moment, because you've got to see what I'm doing here. I'll wait till I see all your eyes. He's back in school. Was that condescending? But it's good. In the Exodus, God rescued Egypt with a mighty and an outstretched arm. In the life of Jesus, he rescued you and me with a mighty and an outstretched arm. See that? Well, how about this? Not mentioned here, but implicit in Galatians. Not by blood... But by blood. Chapter 1, he gave himself to rescue us from the present evil age, from this exile. And in chapter 2, the Son of Man loved me and gave himself for me. And instead of dwelling amongst them in the tabernacle, in the wilderness, he now dwells in hearts all over the world. It's for your good that I go, said Jesus, but I will not leave you as orphans. God sent the spirit of his Son into our hearts, because you're a son the spirit that calls out, Abba, Father, you are an heir. That's why you're all sons. We learned that last week. You're all sons, meaning all heirs. So, some concluding remarks for those with faith, those who live within the faithfulness of the Son of Christ, those who belong to Jesus. If you don't, by the way, I would love to pray with you. I was hearing a talk as ordinary as the one you're hearing now, and I'm like, that guy said, come up to me if you're not sure. And I came up to him. Come up to me. I would love to pray with you. But for those who live within the faithfulness of the Son of God, here are some truths that will set you free. You are loved. Yes, you are. Divinely loved. Do not believe the lie that you aren't, that's etched into you from something from your past, a bully in your present, a sense of self just scrambling to get because you get told by liberal Western democracies to let it bubble up within you, but then the beauty myth can strike you down in seconds. Don't believe it. You are loved. But you are also redeemed. It's not just that you're loved benignly, but saved, yes, even from your own sin. And so you are part of the family of God, heirs, according to the promise, set to inherit the earth, no economy class in the people of God, so don't let anyone pressure you on irrelevant matters. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Something. This is irrelevant, circumcision, uncircumcision. But keeping God's commands, new creation, faith expressing itself through love, that's your life. All this is true for you now. But most importantly for today, you have God's Spirit. You do. But do not believe the lie that having God's Spirit means that you won't suffer. Jesus cried, Abba, Father, in the Garden of Gethsemane, ahead of his death, he needed strength from his daddy, from his God, from his Father, to enact this exodus, to die the death that I deserved, that I might receive this coming of age in the resurrection Paul indeed used Abba Father to talk of those who endure suffering in Romans 8, and that's how we'll conclude our service in a few moments' time. You have God's Spirit. It means that God is present with you now. Draw strength from Him. 
as you pray, and do things in his strength as you go about your business. Brian said, Dear Mr. Vernon, we accept the fact that we had to sacrifice a whole Saturday in detention for whatever it is we did wrong. In other words, we don't deserve to be here. You know, I'm not really a sinner. But we think you're crazy to make us write an essay telling you who we think you are. And it was crazy, given at least the portrayal of Mr. Vernon. Mr. Vernon is oppressive, but for those who've come to Jesus Christ, he is our liberator. We find out who we really are, redeemed heirs of God. God of all grace, you came. It's hard to imagine that Paul penned Galatians 4, 1 to 7 without John 8 in his mind. Jesus, who's the God of all grace who came, said to the Jews who believed in him, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Such a liberating verse, by definition. But note, embedded to being set free is knowing the truth and being bound to his teaching. So it's going to be a different kind of liberation than I get to do whatever I want, whenever I want. And then in the dialogue about being part of Abraham's family, so important for Galatians, Jesus, of course, points out that these Jews who believed in him were not part of Abraham's family and they did not belong to God because they didn't listen to him. Someone puts up their hand and strangely says, we are Abraham's descendants have never been slaves of anyone. Have you heard of the Exodus? How can you say that we shall be set free? Then Jesus says that the freedom you will experience is not like any normal freedom. It is a much deeper one, more profound. It is one from sin and by a son. Jesus replied, and you can see the mirror in Galatians 4, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let me pray. Father, it will be tempting for us to... Um, Drink in the water, breathe the air of 200 years of, of uh, Western liberal uh, thinking. And we do thank you for it uh, in many ways. Um, and yet at the same time, we don't belong to merely ourselves. We belong to Jesus Christ. The Son has set us free. We know the truth, and the truth will set us free. And we say right here and right now that we are loved, we are redeemed, heirs of the kingdom of God, and we say that you have poured out your spirit in our hearts. We take joy in this, this new exodus, this new liberation. Awaken us, awaken us in it for Christ's sake. Amen.